Welcome to What in the World Language Podcast. Today, I am here with Adrian Brandenburg and Mary Beth Johnson. Adrian is a high school Spanish teacher in Colorado. After teaching in Minnesota for a few years, she has been back in Colorado teaching Spanish and Spanish heritage classes for the last seven years. Mary Beth teaches Spanish with Adrian in Colorado and is the new curriculum facilitator for world languages in her district. This is her 10th year in public education and she has worked with heritage speakers for seven of those years. Welcome to the show, ladies. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Today on the podcast, we will be speaking about issues related to teaching heritage Spanish language students, not only as a non-native Spanish speaker, but also as a white educator. We will speak about some of the challenges we face as we teach students about a language and culture that are not our own. Adrian and Mary Beth will share their experiences as they go about addressing and confronting these critical issues on today's show. So without any further ado, let's get started. So, Adrian and Mary Beth, what does it mean to teach heritage language students as a non-native white Spanish teacher? And how would you define that in the context of our topic? Adrian, could you go first? Sure. I think, um, you know, it's always a little bit uncomfortable <laughs> to teach a class full of heritage speakers when you're not um, Latinx, when you are a white person. I think um, it's a little bit precarious, as Mary Beth was saying the other day. I think, um, I think Mary Beth and I would agree that really the best thing for those students is to have a teacher that looks like them. <laughs> and so right. um, I think being white and non-native, I think we're always just trying to be really aware of our place and our place in front of those um, students and um, just really being careful about how we go about teaching that class and trying to quote unquote impart knowledge. You know, right. it's, mm -hmm. it makes us sort of rethink what that looks like. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And so I think um, it, it's just a very, um, it's a very precarious line that we walk a lot of the time. And I think we're constantly asking ourselves, is there someone else that would be a better fit that could do this job that, you know, is there someone else I work with? Sometimes, you know, we're the only, sometimes we're the only option, but, um, you know, if it's the choice of having us or no heritage class, you know, obviously having a heritage class is a great, is the better option. But I think we're always kind of looking for, um, making sure we're making the best choice for those kids in terms of who's in front of them. And, um, and Mary Beth likes to say this, I don't know if she's going to mention this, but she likes to tell our kids, you know, I'm the best we have right now, but hopefully some of you will grow up and become Spanish teachers and you can teach this class and then I won't have to do it anymore. That's amazing. So. I love that. Absolutely. So Mary Beth, go ahead. And I, I mean, I don't, don't think I would add anything much to what Adrian just said. I think, Sometimes it can even be insulting for our students to come in and say, who's this white lady in here that's going to teach me my own language? Mm -hmm. You know, and sometimes you get that reaction for students that's totally valid. And so I think part of our job, too, is to walk that line of I'm not 
here to be the authority on your language. I'm not here to teach you to speak your language. And I've tried to be really transparent with kids about that and about what my role is in that setting, especially when, you know, we're a guest here. We're a guest in their language, a guest in this culture. And so what does that look like for us? And being transparent with kids about that, I think, is important because, as we know, they're um, – students don't react well to inauthenticity. So I think that that I like to try to be authentic with them about that. And one other factor that is, um, I think this is something we'll probably talk about later with some of the other questions we're going to discuss. But one of the things that has kept us in these classes is that we offer them for college credit. And so because we have master's degrees, we're approved to teach those college credit classes where we might have a Latino or a Spanish-speaking colleague who doesn't have a master's degree and then they can't teach those classes. And it's part of that system of privilege. And it's a privilege that we have that mm-hmm. um, I think we need to be really hyper aware of that, that we come from a position of privilege to even be in this position to teach these classes too. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. That is, you know, I think that's critical, uh, recognizing that privilege and being transparent, as you mentioned, that's, you know, that is very important, and it's it's about building that relationship and trust with those students at the beginning, right? So they don't look mm-hmm. at, so they don't feel othered themselves, right? Um, right. So that's yeah, absolutely. So um, in thinking about how we maintain these predominantly uh, white narratives of power uh, in the ways that we go about teaching. You know, and more specifically in writing, how can we begin to address the colonization of our text or the canon, so to speak? How do these things show up in our classrooms and how can we begin to decolonize our curriculum? Adrian, would you like to address that? Sure. I think um, for me, this I've been thinking about this a lot recently um, on Twitter. There's a couple of hashtags. There's a hashtag called Disrupt Texts. Mm-hmm. Where they're talking about, you know, encouraging teachers to not always just do the text that you're supposed to do, <laughs> not always do the canon. Right. And there's a hashtag called disrupt writing. Um, and I recently read, um, I haven't finished it yet, but I read several chapters of the book by, um, I think his name is John Warner. It's called Why They Can't Write. And he's basically talking about how we use things like the five paragraph essay to really impose power mm. over our students mm-hmm. and by telling them, you know, your writing must fit into this formula that, you know, that society, this white society and um, white people have sort of demanded that you do and you do well in order to have access um, to things is really um, just another way that we're really holding our students back. And so just sort of thinking about are there ways where we can honor students and their writing and their ability to write without sort of making them fit into the, um, you know, in without making them fit into the mold of what um, we have said, (laughs) what society has really said Mm -hmm. is, you know, quote unquote, good writing or strong writing for high school students. Um, And the idea of the canon, you know, I feel like there are people trying to teach their heritage classes, you know, and they insist on teaching, you know, the canon. And I feel like um, those hashtags on Twitter are really about the English language canon. But when we think Uh about like, the Spanish canon, when I think about what was on my master's list, when I think about what was on, you know, what's on the AP list, um, lit list, when I think about, you know, do I want to teach Quixote to my heritage students? Why or why not? And why wouldn't I do that? And thinking about how can I 
include texts that are not part of that canon, right. but are texts that actually students can relate to by authors that look like them, by themes that mean things to them, um, and not automatically doing the ones that I, you know, that I learned in grad school. I think those are just some of the ways that we can start thinking about um, how to really honor our students' identity, <laughs> you know, and not exactly. impose our power over them in those two ways. Exactly. Mary Beth, would you like to add anything to that? I, I would agree, you know, with everything that Adrian said. And I think I do struggle with that, thinking about when we're teaching writing, what are we really teaching? We're teaching the white academic moves. We're teaching white academic rhetoric. And it's a real um, conundrum for me, I feel like, because I know that in Spanish, the academic rhetoric is probably different and the moves look different in Spanish. And um, so I ask myself sometimes, like, why am I not teaching those? Why am I not educating myself about those? Because I feel like I don't know enough about that to teach that way. Mm -hmm. And then I look at it from the perspective of, well, I'm trying to prepare my students to do well in academic settings. And, And so then that's that whole piece, too, of are we perpetuating that piece of... I want to give them the tools to do well, but then by, by, am I buying into that system and just perpetuating it more? And so, yeah, it's a conundrum. And then I, I feel like I agree with what Adrian was saying about the literature as well. And I think something that I don't know why this had never occurred to me before, but the fact that we are from a white perspective, that's a, a colonizing perspective, but then also we're teaching a language that was a language of colonization as well. Absolutely. And so... It's kind of like double colonization <laughs> there. And so right. it makes me want to think about what are the voices that I can bring to the table or that I can look for and seek out that are um, languages of that have been colonized or people that voices that have been colonized within Latinx communities, like indigenous voices and more and women's voices and things like that. And how can I bring that into my classes more and just to always be critical of that, to always be Mm -hmm. looking at that perspective and how can we bring in more, more variety, especially voices that have been silenced. Right. So we can bring in some of the, you know, more uh, modern writers, so to speak, some, some Latinx voices uh, Mm -hmm. into those, into our classrooms. Right. As opposed to what Adrian said about, do I really want to teach Don Quixote? Um, in one of my previous podcasts, I interviewed uh, Dr. Krishana Heinz Gaither from uh, Guilford College, and she mentioned that fine balance that you also mentioned, Mary Beth, about teaching academic rigor, that, that word rigor, right? <laughs> uh-huh. But teaching academic content and not pushing that narrative, right? It is a fine line. It is that conundrum that you mentioned. Um, and so she said, it is our job to prepare them for the standard that is there, but also to provide them a different avenue, right? To to recognize and to acknowledge their voice. So, yeah, it's it's a challenge, right, to balance both of those things. But um, I think you guys are on the right path with it. So one of the things that I'm interested in addressing is this notion of promoting an academic dialect over students in formal dialect, what is often referred to as linguicism, right? That's to say, how can we as educators demonstrate and honor what our students bring to the table as far as language? And Adrian, if you want to go first. Um, yeah, I think, um, honestly, I think I was, 
I feel like this was me pretty, you know, when I started, this was me pretty early in my career. I had this idea of like, I need to, like, I know the academic Spanish and they know the informal Spanish. So my goal here is to like, quote unquote, fix their Spanish. You know, my goal is to Mm. um, show them the ways. (laughs) And so I feel like, you know, the idea, you know, Mary Beth and I were lucky enough to go to this um, seminar at, um, at Colorado State University. And one of the big, big takeaways was really the idea of, um, you know, that, that idea of being additive and not subtractive and looking at their Spanish, the Spanish that they come with, um, really honoring that as a di- as an informal dialect um, that helps them immensely, you know, that serves them really well in certain contexts and it helps them get what they want. And if they didn't have that, they would be at a serious disadvantage in their lives. And so really honoring that and helping them see like, the goal is just to give you more dialects. The goal is to give you more options and to help you start to realize when to use which one to get what you want and sort of trying to really empower them with what they come with. And I feel like it's always good for me to say like your informal dialect is a dialect that I don't really have. It's one that I try to have and I have to work really hard on and you have to teach me how, you know, you, they get to teach me words, slang words that I don't know. Um, but you know, and just sort of saying we're on an even playing field here. You have something I don't have and I know about something that I want you to have too. And so just sort of teaching them the idea of just having that academic dialect as, um, as a tool of power to get what they want and Mm -hmm. not to replace the Spanish that they, that they know is quote unquote correct and used correctly. Like they use it correctly. And by that, I mean, they use it effectively to get what they need every day. And so who am I to come in and say, oh, that's not actually right. They're like, what are you talking about? Of course, that's right. That's what my mom says. That's what my sister says. That's what I say. And if I say almuerzo, then I don't get fed. You know, like, I think just remembering that and trying to sort of flip the the script on how I used to approach that. And I, and like I said, I'm totally guilty. No, but you, you, you may have been guilty, but you, you came to the realization and that's, that's the journey, right? That's, and, yeah, and definitely. like Mary Beth mentioned earlier about just being transparent with your students, you start off the year, you know, acknowledging those differences and not condemning them, right? That's, I think that's the most important thing. Um, Mary Beth, would you like to add something to that? I would say all the things that Adrian said as well. That were also all the things I had in my notes too. Right. And I think, and this kind of ties to the last question, but I think to this one as well, I started following a couple of poets on Twitter that I bet some of your, not on Twitter, but on Instagram, I meant to say. On Instagram, I've started following some poets, especially one is Elizabeth Velasquez and the other one is Jessica Salgado. And I think that there's some really fresh voices that push back against that idea that you have to have a, you know, you have to have an MFA to be a writer and they are doing Mm. lots of writing and having success and putting voices out there that are super important. And Mm -hmm. so I think to exposing students to people who didn't have, who didn't go through those academic channels and are still our writers and Mm. our academics and are finding their, finding their voices in that way. I think I've learned a lot about that from following Rachel Cargo as well, who recently left Columbia University because she felt like she was working she was working within an oppressive academic system. And so um, I think that's important too. I agree with what Adrian said about it's 
not about necessarily promoting an academic dialect over another. It's just providing that access. This is just one more way. I love what what she said um, using it, the academic uh, language uh, as a as a tool of power, right? Mm-hmm, uh, exactly. I, I love that. That was that's a tweetable quote, by the way. That's <laughs> great. That's uh, great. Yeah, that's that's awesome. So, um, did you have any? You want to add more to that, or? I think the only other thing I would say too, to just emphasize that 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 the dialect they have is a tool of power too in certain situations. It's oh, a tool absolutely. of power that they have. In their in their communities, it's a tool of power they have with their friends. It's, you know, so that's also a tool of power. It's just a different kind of power in a different setting. Absolutely, absolutely. We gotta we gotta reiterate that, right? So, uh-huh. um, you guys have a blog, and and in your blog, you speak a lot about bringing heritage classes and programs. Uh, sometimes for the first time to schools around the country, right? So tell us a bit about that work and some of the issues over the years you've encountered in working with these teachers and schools as they navigate a system that is oftentimes a racist one uh, to bring heritage language classes uh, to their schools. Speak about that. And I think in the sake of transparency, it's important for us to say too that we've had – a lot of luck in this area that the first time I started teaching heritage classes, I came into a program that was already established that a school that wanted to have heritage classes and they supported that. And then the work I had to do was to, to keep the, keep them convinced that it was working and it was meeting the ends that they hoped it would meet. Mm-hmm. And then when I came to Pooter, Adrian was, again, was had already revived the Spanish classes there. And so it was, you know, we came into that system already, but I think, um, a lot of we hear a lot from teachers about things like how to com- how they need to convince their administration or school board first of all that there's even a need, and that they hear questions like, "Well, why do students need to take a Spanish class if they already speak Spanish? Why do they need Spanish?" And then that's the first question. Right, <laughs> so, right. And my, that my answer is always, "Why do we take English classes until we're in the twelfth grade? Then mm-hmm. if we already speak English, why mm-hmm. do we take English classes?" Mm-hmm. You know. And then the other question is, well, why can't they take the Spanish classes that we already offer? We offer Spanish classes. They can take those classes. And really, and I know that a lot of our administration is way more astute than that. But sometimes if you're not coming from a language background, it's questions that we need to clarify for people. And right. how the needs of heritage speakers are so much different from, Absolutely. Um, from just our typical acquisition classes. And then that seems to be the first hurdle. And and there's some, you know, there's some racist systems behind that of valuing one language over another and and things like that, that I think um, sometimes can be hurdles for getting a program started for sure. Absolutely. And then after that, there are all the logistic hurdles. There's hiring. Are are your, is your administration going to put their hiring dollars behind hiring somebody who's qualified to teach a heritage class? Can we shift our, our FTE within our budgets to provide for that heritage class? Are we going to give it a priority when we do scheduling? Are we going to look at scheduling and say, okay, this might be a singleton this year, so I'm not going to schedule classes that conflict with that at the same time? Or you may need to throw finances behind that class and say, okay, we need different materials. We don't need the materials that we're using in our language acquisition classes necessarily. So are those are kind of the, once they, once you get admin to see a need, then after that, what are you going to do to support that systemically? And to see that class as valuable as an English class that a student is in and to see that that preservation of that 
home language is just as valuable as them learning English. And then it will benefit them in English circles as well. If they're the stronger, they can create their wait. I'm going to say that again. The stronger that their home language becomes and the stronger their literacy skills become in that first language, those can be transferred to English as well. There's always that back and forth. Oh, absolutely. Transfer of skills as well. Adrian, would you like to add to that? Um, yeah, I think I just, I agree with all of that. I just was going to add, um, you know, as far as just, I think sometimes it's just a place for teachers to just start asking questions. You know, why? Why do we value the bilingualism of students that speak English primarily? Um, learning a second language, why is that sometimes more important in terms of like where we're putting our money and our time and our energy and our professional development? Why is that more important than students that have Spanish as their first language in our acquiring English or our long-term English learners? Why don't we value their bilingualism the same? You know, and and I think the idea, sometimes it's just about Sometimes those those parents um, of the Spanish speaking students, sometimes they don't feel super empowered in the school and academic settings. And sometimes they're not the squeaky wheel. Sometimes they're not the student, the parent saying, hey, my kid doesn't need to be in Spanish one or hey, my kid needs a Spanish class or hey, my kid doesn't want to take French. What else can you offer? Mm-hmm. And so I think just really thinking about, you know, giving kids the same thing is not is not really what we're, we're after. What we're really after is giving kids what we need. You know, we wouldn't put English speakers in ESL classes. Even if that's all we had, we wouldn't do that. Here, here. So why do we do that so consistently with, with Spanish speakers? Yeah. Absolutely. It's kind of like bringing these programs sometimes. Do you ever encounter or have you heard stories of teachers encountering this deficit thinking that it's just not important of a program to have, you know, whether it's financial or whatever, but, you know, that's one thing, uh, as you mentioned, allotting funds for hiring uh, but that deficit mentality, have you like, have you encountered that or heard stories of that? Anyone? Mary Beth? I haven't encountered it firsthand, um, except for the questions about just questions, even sometimes from other teachers in their building or why would they need a Spanish class if they speak Spanish, that kind of thing. <laughs> but that, right, and I think too, it's where you start to question those values. Like Adrian was talking about valuing bilingualism. Well, truly bilingualism is the value that we have. If you just looked at it from clear, just straight cost-benefit analysis, who are students who are the closest to being truly bilingual and biliterate? It's our heritage speakers. And yep. so can we? those are the ones that are the closest to meeting that goal. So mm-hmm. why wouldn't we, if we really value bilingualism, it seems like that should be our first priority is to support that with those, to support the students that already come with those resources because they're so close. Some of them are, most of them are already there, you mm-hmm. know, for for all the purposes that they need. And we just need to be able to continue to support that. It's going to take a long time to bring our monolingual English speakers to a place of where they're bilingual. Right. So thinking about it from that perspective too, of where are we going to put our resources? Mm-hmm. But um, I feel like I've been really lucky also to be in schools and in a state where it's been um, valued. And so I think that that's, it's hard for me to say, you know, we haven't had as much of that, I don't think. Right. Well, yeah. So like you mentioned, it's fortunate you you came to a school with a program already in place, and, and mm-hmm. I did too in my district and at my school. There was already mm-hmm. a program in place. So those it's easier for us uh, as teachers coming in, especially as white teachers coming in, the, the program is already established. 
right? We just, mm-hmm. we, we just have to check our privilege at that point, right? And what are we doing? Mm-hmm. So as you guys know, and this is something that just mm, – uh, a lot of schools <laughs> place their heritage learners in regular Spanish classes, such as Spanish 1, Spanish 2, or 3, um, which if the teacher is not prepared or does not have strategies to include these students in, in their instruction in that setting, they're setting both the teacher and the students up for failure. Um, could you speak a bit about how you go about addressing that issue? Yes, I think that, that that's a huge issue. And I think that's the question that we get the most because we are, you know, we're advocates for heritage programs. That's what we want to see in every school. Mm-hmm. And we know that that's not always a reality. And that's the question we get the most. Well, what about if you don't have the, what if you don't have the demand for a heritage class? What if you don't have enough students? What do we do? And that's super common, I feel like, across the country. Mm-hmm. And so I think our first line of defense is always the, the debate against, um, Equity versus equality. The giving students what they need is not does not look the same for every kid. Right. And I think that that question too, what Adrian said of, well, would you put a would you put a monolingual English speaker in an ESL class if that's all you had? Mm-hmm. Would you have them say, okay, you're just going to go take those classes? We wouldn't do that. No. And so, but what what do we do if that's the only situation that we have? And I think there's, um, you know, I really believe in reading when, and I know Adrian does too. That we believe in the power of that reading for pleasure and that if we can get a student hooked on reading, that's really going to support them. And so I want to create that space. If I had a heritage learner in a mixed class, I want them to be able to, I'd say just let them read the whole time. Mm-hmm. But then I think I also have to look at that from what is, what's good for them socially and emotionally too. And is that going to make a kid feel excluded? And right. I feel like it just is part of that piece of always no population is a monolith and you have to know every kid and talk to every kid, especially your heritage learners and find out what do they need, not just academically, but also socially, what do they need emotionally? What are they needing at that time? I've worked with young groups of kids where I had heritage learners in there. And what those little kids really needed was to, was to feel apart and feel like an expert for a while. Mm -hmm. Whereas a high schooler, that might not be fair. Right. And to impose that on a student and say, oh, we're going to make you the expert on this topic because you speak Spanish. Well, what if they don't know a word and then they lose face in front of their peers? Like that's, and then that's, there's just that's othering. a dangerous place. Absolutely. Uh-huh. That's othering right. that student when you call that student out as to be the exemplar for his his culture, right? That's a, right. That's a lot to place on a teenager or on an adolescent, right? When you, when you, uh-huh. we as teachers say, oh, well, you're going to be the representative of your culture in my class. That's not. Yeah, yeah we can't. We can't do that. So, um, right. Anything else you want to add, or Adrian? Would you like to chime in on that? Um, no. The only other thing I was going to add is just that idea of um, that's pretty common. Um, I don't. As far as making a kid the answer for the culture, I don't know if that's as common. But I think linguistically, as a model, I think that's super common. Mm-hmm. That teachers are like, oh, you can say all of this. But I think what's always really bothered me about that is feeling like that student maybe isn't really getting what they're needing, but that's happening at the expense of, you know, the other 29 students in that class that are getting what they need. Right. And so it sort of comes across like these other 29 students are more important or their needs are more important Mm -hmm. and you're not really supposed to be here. So you're just going to be here to serve them. It, I think that's what's really sort of always um, been a little bit uncomfortable for me about that situation. So well, I think I do agree. I think there are times when that's maybe the best option. But I think what Mary Beth said about just like knowing the kid and knowing 
what the kid wants and what the kid needs. I feel like that's really probably the key there. Yeah. It, it's interesting too. I mean, I've been teaching heritage classes now, you know, for seven years and this is the first year because I have this new role in the district. This is the first year that I'm not teaching a strictly heritage class, but I am teaching an upper level IB class that's now I'm back to a mixed class where I have, you know, a pretty good number of heritage learners in there mixed with language acquisition learners. And so it's been, I'm like, oh, I need to walk my, walk my talk here a little bit. And what right. am I going to do? And, and I feel like that what I've, and I don't know that there's not a good answer. There's not a good answer, but I feel like the answer I've been coming back to is just, is choice. And how can I say, okay, this is the material we're going to work with. And what does a language acquisition student need from this? And what does a heritage learner need from this? Mm-hmm. And so, and giving students some choice if they want to do some more independent work or if they want to just work with the group. And, and if, if it's going to be like a particularly challenging text and I would, and I, I might ask for some help and say, would you be okay with this? Would you be okay with being a group leader today? And if you're not, no pressure, but I know other people are going to struggle with this. Would you mind? Mm -hmm. And then if they want to say no, they can say no. And maybe I shouldn't even be asking that question. Hmm. But I feel like I'm just, I'm trying to walk that fine line this year and figure out what is that going to look like in this class where mm-hmm. I want students to have access to the IB program. Right. But we're in that, it's like a, within it, it's like a mini, a microcosm of what we've been talking about that we don't have the numbers to support just a heritage class within IB. Mm-hmm. And so what can we do? What can I do within the confines of what we have? And so it's tricky. I'm going to yeah, keep working well, on it this year for sure. Well, I mean, it's it's the recognition first and foremost that there is no one uh, a way to go about approaching a class like this, right? Like you, like uh-huh. you mentioned, uh, and it's based on the people, the kids that you have in front of you. That's going to kind of drive the the things that you're going to choose for them. And I think what you're saying is absolutely appropriate in trying to find that balance of activities that are, you know, going to keep the class kind of moving forward, you know. Uh-huh. Um, but, yeah, there's no there's no easy answer. I haven't found one in all my years. And every year I have heritage students in my Spanish 2 class. And uh, I don't know how I make it work. Every year is different. It's hard, um, yeah. I actually, this year I have a, um, a student who uh, is in my class that doesn't speak any English, just speaks Spanish. He's from Honduras. And uh, that's that's a new challenge, you know. Um, so, what will I do? I went what through will that I last year in Spanish too. Yeah, it's always what will it's I do tough. now? Yeah, and mm-hmm. and he's probably already um, at the at the intermediate high uh, with his writing and reading. So he's 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 uh, he's pretty good. So. I'm still working on, like you, figuring out how I'm going to make this happen. And he benefits as well as my other 20 students in that class benefit, right? Um, so uh, as you know, as we wrap up toward the end of this podcast here, um, I like to ask teachers to share a bit about their language learning journeys, uh, how they became a teacher, blah, 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 where they are. Uh, so... Um, Adrian or Mary Beth, uh, if you would like to start us off, let's start with Adrian. You you tell us your teacher journey, Adrian. Um, how did okay, you I'll How be- did you end up being Adrian Brandenburg, the fabulous so heritage language <laughs> teacher? So uh, actually, I studied microbiology in college, but what? I just couldn't get away from Spanish. I loved it so much, so <laughs> I ended up 
picking up, I was, I was doing a second major. So I just decided to major in Spanish and get my teaching license. I uh, went to grad school with Mary Beth. Um, that was super fun. And then I taught in Minnesota for a couple of years. No, with mm-hmm. zero heritage speakers, but it was a really good time for me to just kind of get my feet wet in teaching. Right. And when I moved back to Poudre, or we'll move back to Fort Collins, which is where I get, went to school and stuff. I, uh, I got to go to this great high school that is fantastic and had all these heritage speakers and no heritage classes. Mm. And it just so happened that they were looking to start them up again with um, this other teacher who was near retirement and me. And I was like, great, that's what I wanted to do anyways. And then she ended up retiring. So I just got got it all by myself. So I, you know, started just doing it by myself for a couple of years. My only goal was that kids will like it. <laughs> kids will sign up again. Right. You know, and so um, just little by little, I did. I started ninth grade, then 10th grade. Then Mary Beth came over from um, she was in the mountains at a different school doing heritage. So then she came and started teaching the next level. So it's been a, it's been exciting. So microbiology. Yeah. Wow. I didn't know that. <laughs> I I can't. I was sitting here trying to think. I interviewed someone earlier on one of my previous podcasts that also did not uh, uh, start off studying Spanish. I mean, I had I interviewed Mark Mullaney. I don't know if you guys are, are familiar yeah, with him, but he doesn't have a degree in Spanish at all, right? Oh, um, so he learned Spanish uh, as what he likes to call kitchen Spanish, what <laughs> I like to call authentic input, right? <laughs> yes. So that's that's how he came about becoming a Spanish teacher. So uh, Mary Beth, would uh-huh. you like to share your journey? I also didn't start in Spanish. I started in social work and was going to do a Spanish minor and. Stayed abroad one semester and was like, nope, I just want to do Spanish. How can I just do Spanish all the time and be off in the summer? And so I was like, oh, I could be a teacher. I came, a lot of my family um, members are teachers. My mom was a teacher, aunts, all kinds of people in my family. And I had seen them have the summers off my whole life. And I thought, oh, I could just speak Spanish for my job and be off in the summer. And I started that and then got to student teaching was like, Oh, and I, and I like to teach, which is kind of a little bit backwards to come to it that way. And then, um, I really struggled with Spanish. It was, I think that's part of the reason why I liked it is because it was really hard for me. Mm-hmm. And I had a degree and was teaching in middle school. And my Spanish was not very good. And my kids would say, my, I had a lot of native speakers, a lot of heritage speakers. And I would say, miss, your Spanish is so bad. Oh saying, my goodness. Don't tell the other kids. Don't it's tell so the bad. Kids. And then wow. I left. Um, after that year, I went to Costa Rica for a while and really just worked on my Spanish and then came back and went to graduate school and everything kind of fell into place. That's where I met Adrian and felt like I finally had some like real success with my own language skills and abilities. And then um started feeling really good about that. And then was looking for a job after I graduated and I had a, a phone call at nine o'clock at night on a Sunday night from my principal in Summit County saying, we had a Spanish teacher leave and can you come for an interview tomorrow? Wow. And I was still looking for a job and like, yep. I ended up going that up that week and interviewing with them. And it was, a, it included some acquisition classes and two levels of a heritage program. And so I really wanted a job and I knew a little bit about heritage speakers, but I didn't really know much and took that job and moved to Breckenridge and I taught there for three years and really came to love it. And it was a lot of stabbing in the dark and not really knowing what I was doing with those heritage classes and that really came to um, love that population of kids and I really enjoyed it. And then um, 
but I was not enjoying nine months of snow and uh, <laughs> a year. And so I can understand said, that. Yeah. So Adrian said, there's a position at Air, and I came down and interviewed and was lucky enough to get that job. And, and then Adrian, I was really excited because Adrian was starting some heritage classes that year. And then the third year I was at Air, I joined her, like she said, in that program. And it's just been really, really rewarding. And mm-hmm. I feel like my understanding of, needs and what it means to actually be a literacy teacher, because I feel like that's what we're really doing has grown and morphed so much over the past several years. You know, I just feel like that's kind of where I've gotten to where I am now. And so, and that was when I um, came into the position where I am now, I don't know, but I think that part of that is because I was, I was willing to support that program and it was really, I was really passionate about that and it aligned with our district goals. And so, I'm excited to see what that looks like to keep supporting our other heritage teachers in that role now. So that's fascinating. I, I love the fact that you said that you come into the heritage program, you know, it's kind of like stabbing in the dark, figuring out where to go, <laughs> finding your own uh-huh. way. I think that's a lot of our it, it our stories, at least as white educators, perhaps, maybe even uh, uh-huh. native speakers, they they struggle with the same same things that we do. But I can speak to that also. When I, I started teaching heritage classes one and two, uh, I was pretty much stabbing in the dark and I was leaning a lot on what you guys are saying. And like I met you guys and I was like, this is amazing. And just searching for blogs and uh, just trying to find things that really, really helped me level up and help my students level up. Right. So it was it was, it was definitely a stabbing in the dark. Um, so I want to thank you guys for, uh, being on the show today. This was a very enlightening conversation and, uh, I hope our listeners can, uh, take something away from this. So thank you guys. Thank you. Thanks for having us. And you're listening to what in the world language podcast.